another parable, um, and it is the parable of the rich fool. Before I can read the parable of the rich fool, we have to understand its context. Um, parables can be tricky, and of course, context is important. We have to know why Jesus is telling this parable. He's telling it for a reason. Some things happen. So just a few verses before the parable, let me um, read to you what Jesus says. It's found in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered, so fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Interesting um, verse that Jesus just said. Um, and what I find interesting about it is he almost contradicts himself. If you, and I've highlighted those words. He starts off and ends by saying, don't fear. But then in the middle he says, but I'll tell you what to fear. <laughs> I'll tell you who to fear. So it's like, don't fear. But, but be afraid, but don't fear. And, 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 and even more specifically, he says, don't fear the world and what they can do to your body. Don't fear the natural death, but fear God, because God has authority to take your death further and to cast you into hell. And he says, yes, even you know, to repeat himself, yes, I tell you, fear God. But then in the very next thing, he says, but God loves you. He loves you more than birds. Five sparrows are sold for two pennies. He loves you more than five birds. Um, he loves you more than many birds. So fear not. You see the contrast? Don't fear man. Fear God. But don't fear God because he loves you. What's the, what's the big deal? What's the, what's, what am I trying to say? Um, I think that the bottom line of this whole parable, this whole section in Jesus' ministry, is he's saying this. Stop clinging to your life. We have a tendency to cling to our little lives, don't we? This is mine, and this is, I'm setting this up for myself, and this is, I'm protecting myself, I'm defending myself. This is, this is my little slice of the pie, and I'm hanging on to it. And he's saying, don't you worry about that. Don't worry about who, what people can do to your body or even your own life. Instead, fear God. He's more important. He can do a lot of things to you, even beyond death. But you don't really need to fear him in that way because he loves you. So stop clinging to your life and give it to God. Live for God. That's what I think we're going to be seeing as we look at this parable. Jesus is essentially rebuking their care and anxiety to make a life for themselves, calling them people of little faith. We'll see this later. And he rebukes our faithless fussing as well. Raise your hand if you feel this, you're guilty of this. You're anxious, you're clinging, you're fussy, you're faithless about your own life, and we're not really in control, but we want so desperately to be in control, and sometimes we believe the myth that we are. I say we're guilty. Even more so than that generation, we try to make a life for ourselves, and most of all of us do it through, we do it through, here's how we do it. We do it through wealth. Wealth can kind of provide us some sort of protection, or at least some comfort for ourselves, and wealth can, can be, can be um, explained in lots of ways. Um, we want, some of us want the wealth of knowledge, right? The more things I know, the more smarter I am. That wasn't even a very smart statement, was it? The more smarter I am, 
the, the more I can kind of get around and navigate around my, my world and I know better, you know, right? I need to know things. Some people really want to be smart, smarter than everybody else even. Um, that's a wealth of knowledge, wealth of power. Sometimes with that knowledge comes power. And if I have power, then I can control others and I can control my life and no one can touch me. And then, of course, the, probably the thing that comes to mind the most is wealth of materials. The more material I have, the more I'm protected, the more I'm cushioned, the more I can have a long, healthy, wealthy life, uh, I, I'll be protected. And, of course, sometimes with that wealth of materials comes power as well. People can use their material wealth to manipulate others. And we're, I think we're going to see all of that in this, in this context. Um, so how are we supposed to live then? There seems to be this constant reminder in the Bible that we're not supposed to cling to our life. We need to lose our life. Jesus says it, right? If you want to save your life, you must lose your life. If you want to gain your life, you must relinquish your life. And Paul seemed to understand this. Paul said it like this. He said, for me to live is Christ, and to die would be gain. I'm not clinging to my life. If you want to kill me, kill me, because then I get to go home and be with the Lord. But if I'm not going to go home and be with the Lord, then I'm going to live on this earth. And if I'm living on this earth, I'm living for Christ. For me to live is Christ. That's what I'm living for, Christ in me. So I think today we're going to look at this. Stop clinging to your life. Live for Christ. So let me move on with the parable. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before God before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, or the, I mean, excuse me, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this today because I want to stick with the theme of stop clinging to our lives, but Jesus is saying the same thing. Don't worry about what people think of you. Don't worry about your reputation. Stop trying to defend yourself or protect yourself. Don't worry about those things. If you're too afraid to acknowledge me before man, then that's a big deal. Stop clinging to your life. Let go of that. Because your um, eternal life is more important. Moving on. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So think about this. What if you were a defendant in a court system and the only thing that was going to defend you was some sort of words? You have to say the right things. You have to convince people that you're not guilty. You're going to want to have the right words, right? You'll prepare for that. You'll have the, you, you want the best lawyer, so to speak. Someone, who's can, someone can speak in a way that would move people to say, you know, let's, you know, not guilty. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. If you get in that situation, don't worry about what you're supposed to say. No one, no one would not worry about that. I would worry about that. <laughs> he says, don't worry because I will tell you what to say in that hour. So Jesus is immediately starting off with the wealth of knowledge. You want to have it all figured out. You want to have your best case laid out. You want, you know, the right words, the right, the right style. And Jesus says, no, you don't have to worry about that because I love you, and when you get into that situation, I'm going to take care of you, and I'll give you the words to say, and I'll do it in that hour. <laughs> I want to say something about that. God tends to always do it that way. Not always but tends to always, if that makes sense. He shows up at the last minute. Anyone want to raise your pinky and say amen to that? Yeah, he does. Um, I'll give you an example. When my wife and I were praying about planting a church, I was uh, making the big bucks as a youth pastor in a small church. 
and they weren't big bucks, <laughs> but they were the right amount of bucks to pay for the mortgage and you know to feed the family. And we had three kids and a house and two cars. And so, as you know, th that becomes a you're, you're enslaved to that. And so, to to plant a church, I'd have to quit that job, and then send out support letters and try to raise money to say, look, we'd like to go on this endeavor to start a new church, and there's not going to be a salary, and so we we're going to depend upon you to, to support us if you would be willing to. Um, and whenever I announced to the church that I wanted to plant a church, they gave me like six months to continue to work there, and I had to raise this money. My, my dream and my hope and my prayer was that we were going to start to raise this money and kind of stockpile it over here so that when my job here ended officially, we would step into the pile and start spending it until money came in. Guess what? May came along, and there was no pile. No one didn't want to support me. Few people did, a couple hundred dollars there, but that's not even going to pay for food, you know. You can tell the way I eat. And so um, here's what happened. May came into the job. June comes. You know, the mortgage is due June 1st. Guess what happened on June 1st? I get a phone call from a church, an EFCA church, saying, we've agreed to support you for quite a large sum of money. We're going to support you for three years, half of what my old salary was. That's a big deal. Uh, I mean, not a huge deal. We don't make millions of dollars, you know, but half of your old salary is a big deal. Um, and, and he did it on June 1st. I was in the car when I got the call, almost ran over somebody, you know. Well, it's crazy. <laughs> Same thing happened. We had, a, we had a supporter who was supporting us at $500 a month um, for one year. And at the end of that year, we were like, oh, no, where's that $500 going to come from? And then guess what happened? You know what happened, right? The day of. Someone sent a check, a random person, and said, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to do this once a month. No, we don't mind at all. And they were like, you, you did this. God always tends to show up at the last minute, doesn't he? Why do you think he does it that way? Yeah. He forces you to, you know, you learn the lesson, and then you have to forget it, don't you? We do. We forget it, and then he's got to show us again. But he's constantly making us wait for him and depend on him because what happens if, we, if it didn't happen that way? We would have thought, I would have thought, that the money came in because of my creative support letters, right? Oh, see, the support letters went out and people filled it, so it was me who did it. No, 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 no. God says, no, no, I want to make you wait to the last minute, and you're going to see that oh, it's not going to happen. And God says, no, it's going to happen. I got you. Trust, yeah. So stop clinging to your life. Stop trying to figure it all out. Stop trying to protect yourself. Know that God loves you, and in fact, he loves you more than many birds. <laughs> Moving on. Oh, I should have put that up there. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, that's random. Jesus is talking about birds and not protecting yourself, and someone is stupid enough to just automat just say something out of subject, right? Off subject. Oh, okay. Speaking of courts, I think that's what he's thinking. Speaking of courts, I'm going to take my brother to court <laughs> because he's trying to steal the family inheritance. Can you make him share it with me? Listen to Jesus' response. Man. <laughs> I like that. It's like from the 1970s or something. Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? That's an interesting thing for God to say, isn't it? Who made me judge over you? Take care. And here's this what he says. And he said to them, take care, or you could say, fear. Jesus is still talking about what we should fear. And be on your guard against all covetousness. And I know covetousness typically means wanting what your neighbor has. 
but in the original language, it sounds more like, or is better interpreted, much having. Beware of much having, having much. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, dot, dot, dot. So now we've moved from um, intellectual power, intellectual wealth. I know how to defend myself in a court of law. I know how to take care of myself by being ahead of the game, ahead of the curve, so to speak. Now he's going to say another problem that we have is we want to have much. Much having is the thing that we do to protect our, to cling to our little lives. So he tells them a parable. Here's the parable. Um, well, let me highlight the verse. Don't be afraid. I mean, be afraid of one thing, and that is a much having. Because one's possessions, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So here's the parable to prove the point. The land of a, a rich man uh, produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store all my stuff, all my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my old barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and all of my goods. And I will say to my soul, I'm going to pause there real quick. If you've heard this parable before, then you know that pastors usually spend some time on that word soul and say it's soul. But I want to say that it's, the word used there is psyche. And it can be translated soul or it can be translated life. And I personally think that soul's not a good interpretation in this story. And I'll tell you why. Because we're talking about clinging to our life, right? We're not talking about clinging to our soul. In fact, he's been using the word psyche a dozen times. I've been highlighting them throughout the text. He's been talking about our life. Stop clinging to your life. What you, stop clinging to your, what you, you know, your defense. None of that's about soul. That's all about life. So I like the word life better here because there's a play on words that Jesus is carrying from the first verse of this section even to the last verse, which we haven't looked at yet. So you could translate it soul, but I don't think it really helps with the word play. Um, the entire section is about life and stop clinging on it. So, so, so switching the metaphor all of a sudden to soul and to eternal life, I think robs us of the pun. So let's, or the cosmic joke that Jesus is making. Let's move on. The NIV uses the word, here's how we, different translations try to fix this awkwardness of soul. Now the NIV says, and I will say to myself, you have much. The uh, New Living Translation says, and I will sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have much. The ESV says soul, just read that one. Um, I like the word life. So we're just going to move the word life from here on out. So I will say to my life, life, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your life, that makes sense, is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, the rich man is set. Man, I've had an abundant bumper crop year. I'm set. So I'm going to tear down my old barn, build a big barn, store it all up, and then I'm going to sit back and say to myself, self, you're good. Just sit back, eat, drink, and be married. We've arrived. We've made it. This is what everyone longs for, right? Retirement. You get to that place where it's just you put it all away, and now you can read or watch movies or sit on a beach and drink a drink with an umbrella in it, right? That's what we're living for. This man says, I've made it. And then God says, 
you fool. That's why it's called the, the, the rich fool. Because this very night, your life will be required of you, be, to be taken from you. And then Jesus adds, and who will get the stuff that you'll leave behind? It's a sobering thought. Here's, I often think of this. I'm going to die. <laughs> and when I do, all that I have is going to be sold on Craigslist for half of what it's worth. Isn't it true? The house that I work on, planting flowers, planting trees, trimming trees, painting walls, decorating walls. I'll die, and someone will move in and dig up the flowers because they don't like them and repaint the wall, and it will be their house and their wife and their kids. You see what I'm saying? Well, everything that you have now becomes someone else's. That's sobering, isn't it? All that you work for in an instant means nothing. I want you to know I've done a lot of funerals. And every time I do a funeral, I feel like they're basically all the same. Someone dies, and you walk around the room, and you try to get information from all the people. Tell me about this person so I can say something kind about this person. And people remember two or three things. They were funny, or they thought they were funny. They liked birds. Oh, she loved birds. Birds were everywhere in her house. She just loved birds. Really? You're gonna, this person's gone, and you're going to talk about they like birds? Sure, it's a part of their life, but is it? You've heard the old ag adage about, the, about the, the dash. I bet there's a country song about that dash. Um, you know, you're born in 1947. You die in 2011, and your life is characterized by the dash between 19, you know, that's your life. That's your life. You die, whose is it? You'll never know. But one thing you can get bet your right, your right bottom dollar on is that it will be someone else's, and they'll probably abuse it. They won't, they won't care nearly as much as you did about that thing or that stuff. Well, that's depressing. Let's move on. Jesus is having the fool do, Robert Capon says, what we all do in our greed. We congratulate ourselves on our lifestyle whenever possible. Facebook is, exists for this alone, right? Look at me. <laughs> I'm eating a steak tonight. He sets him up as the paradigm of our whole plausible, reasonable, right-handed, wrong-headed struggle to be masters of an operation that is radically out of our control. Do you remember the contrast between right-handed power and left-handed power? Right-handed power, by definition, is use the force that you have to accomplish the thing that you want. We use right-handed power for everything. You want to plant a flower? How do you do it? With your hands. You want to wipe the spaghetti off of your face? There's no other way to do it. Use the force that you have to get the spaghetti off your face. That's right-handed power. Left-handed power is completely opposite. It's forgiveness. It's grace. It's dying to yourself so that you may have life. It's becoming last so that you might be coming first. Jesus is about left-handed power, and we are about right-handed power. And right-handed power says, work harder, try harder, get it all situated, fix it. This is my life. I've prepared myself. I'm ready to go. And then Jesus says, it's all going to go away, and what good is this going to get you? Our wrong-headed, right-handed struggle to be masters of an operation that is radically out of our control. We think that we want to be captains of a ship that 
all of our life long has been taking on water faster than we can fail. Anyone agree with that statement? We think we're masters of our own lives. And we're, we're, we, this is our ship. And we don't even realize it is going down, down. Welcome to Seasons of Faith. <laughs> Isn't this great? You guys remember, I don't know if you remember the ancient poem by um, Henby or something like that. It was called Invictus. It ends with, I am the captain of my fate and the master of my soul. It's a myth. You are not the captain of anything. Your life isn't over. It's a dash. You think you're in charge of something. You're not. You're not. Most of you are old enough. I mean, we got a lot of old people in that room. Most of you are old enough to know. Uh, I'm there. Um, almost. I may get there. You know what? It could be. My life could be required on the way home on curvy roads in, in Herman. Um, and I have a funeral, and you'll say, he was funny, or at least he thought he was. <laughs> and he ate a country music, and he liked food. Yep, that's the Mike I know. Now let's go eat food <laughs> and put him in the ground. That's, that's, that's what will happen. We're not the captain of anything. Most of us, I think, probably already know that. Our life is it's just its almost over. And when it is, our kids, our grandkids, will run over everything that we thought was important. Think about that. How are you now living for things that don't matter? Did I say something wrong? No? Okay. How are we now living for things that don't matter? You know, when you hear, when you hear people fighting at Christmas because they come to your house and they fight... I think it was you who said this last week. In a year from now, are you even going to remember what you're fighting over? No. Uh, Ten years from now, when you're dead and buried, is anyone even going to remember what your favorite color was? No. So who cares? Stop telling us on Facebook what your favorite color is. You know? No one cares. No one cares. One of these days, you're going to die. <laughs> it's sad. So why do we cling? Why are we living for things that don't matter? We do. Jesus came that we may have life, he says, and life to the fullest but he gives it in a left-handed kind of a way by being least, last, little, lost, dying to self. Stop clinging. Stop worrying. It's not. It's, Jesus is constantly telling us that. If you want to gain your life, you must lose it. So he said to his disciples, therefore, well, here's how you apply this depressing sermon. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. There's that word again, psyche. Do not be anxious about it. Don't worry about it. What will you, what you will eat or, or, or about your body, what you will put on it? For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them of how much more value are you than birds? So you see how Jesus brought the bird back in again. He likes birds. Jesus likes birds. <laughs> and he's basically saying, don't be anxious about your life. Stop clinging and stop worrying. Stop being anxious about your life. And he compares the rich man, the rich fool, to a bird by using the same barn. Did you notice that? The rich fool, he had all this bumper crop, and so he built a big barn. He goes, look, I'm storing all my stuff in my barn. And he took a picture of it and posted it on Facebook. Look at my barn. And then Jesus says, think about this. Consider this, the birds. They don't have barns. They're not rushing around all year round putting stuff in barns. They don't take pictures of barns and put them on Facebook. 
They don't. And yet, God takes care of them abundantly. Who's the fool? The birds or the man? Clearly, the man's the fool with his barns. <laughs> Poor guy. He doesn't realize that God loves him more than birds. And he takes care of the birds. He's going to take care of them. Poor guy. He's clinging to his life. Moving on. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that? Why are you anxious about all the rest? Very interesting little, little, little saying that Jesus makes there. He says, which of you, by being anxious or by worrying, can add a single hour to the span of your life? And he says, if you can't do a, that's a small thing. Why is that a small thing? I'm just going to do some bad math here. Uh, most of us live maybe about 60 years. Some of us live, I mean, a lot of you are over, over that, so excuse me. 60 seems so far away from me. Um, but let's just say 60 because I've already done the math on that. 60 years times 365 days a year times 24 hours a day roughly comes up to about a half a million hours. And so if you live to be 80, it's you know 800,000 hours. That's a lot of hours, right? If I could stack it up, you know, I would and show you. This is how many hours you're going to live. Now, try this, grunt for me, and see if you can add one more. I mean, look at all these hours here, and there's nothing you can do to add one more. Oh, but you think there is, right? You think there is. If I do this, then I won't die. I'll, I can add another hour to my life. But you can't. You can't. If I stop eating cholesterol, we think that, right? We'll add an hour to our life. Now, I'm not saying you should eat cholesterol. Scientifically, medically, that's probably a bad idea. But theologically speaking, wouldn't we all agree that your days are numbered? And there's nothing you can do to change that, nothing. There used to be this commercial that I loved when I was in college. It was this guy, he was running. You know, he's wearing his running shoes, and he's wearing his running clothes. And, you know, he had the little, little bottles of water, you know, stuck on him. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he stopped, and he pulled out his bottle, and it was an Evian bottle, which is like the most expensive water in the universe. And he opens it up, and he drinks it. Oh, yes. And then the, the narrator was like, Evian, the best water in the world. You know, blah, blah, blah. And then he gets back to running, and then a bus smacks him and knocks him over. <laughs> and then the commercial said something like, don't waste your money on Evian. <laughs> the greatest commercial ever. You can't even add a single hour to your life. You think you can, but you can't. It's, 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 when, it's, when it's time, it's time. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those flowers. Solomon is the richest man that ever lived on the face of the planet, till today. Kings and queens from far away came to see his riches. He had all the money in the world at that time. And Jesus says, I tell you, because I was there. I know Solomon. All the clothes he had, not even compared to a Gerbera daisy, to a tulip. Isn't it true? When you see a flower, don't you just say, man, those are pretty. I, I mean, come on. You, you can admit it. Flowers are pretty. That's why they cost so much money when you want to buy them. They, and they smell good, too, better than cologne. So again, Jesus is saying, don't be anxious about your life. Because birds are pretty. And you can't add a single hour to your life, and birds can't, I mean, I mean, excuse me, flowers are pretty. And you can't add a single hour to your life because flowers, are, flowers can't either. They spring up, and then when winter comes, they die. And someone might just reach down and grab them and pick them. 
which means, oh, grr, I'm dying. You know what I mean? I'll be dead in about an hour. But they're mathematically, they're beautiful. Flowers are beautiful. I mean, if you take the math, I'm not good at the math, but they're beautiful. So moving on. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You of little faith. You do not seek what you are to eat. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. So again, he's ending in trust. Stop clinging to your life. Trust God. He is going to add all those things to you. You, can't, you can cling all you want, but if you just let go, he'll give it to you, and that would be better. It's like that last minute when God shows up. It's even better. So... Before we put the finishing touches on this parable, I want you to ask yourself again, what are you living for? What are you clinging to? What are you working so hard on? Is it worth it? And here's the conclusion. I think if we were to conclude this whole message, this whole section, it would be, once again, stop clinging to your life. The whole thrust of all these parables have been Jesus wants to use left-handed power. He wants to teach us to be last and least and little and losers in this world and even dead. He's basically telling us stop clinging to your life. Instead, brace your death. Stop trying to protect yourself and defend yourself. I another way of putting it would be death is the only thing worth clinging to. It's the only thing that no one can take from you. No one wants it. You're going to die. Let me have your death now. No one wants that. Everything else you cling to, everyone else wants. That's why you're clinging to it. And so you, have, you run the risk constantly of losing everything that you're clinging to. But the one thing that you could never lose is the one thing you can never lose, and that's death. Cling to that, then you'll be happy. That's awfully morbid, Mike. But that's not nearly as morbid as what Jesus said. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to live your life, you must lose your life. If you want to live, you must die. Die to yourself. So Jesus ends, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know, you're clinging to this little pathetic life, but he's got something better for you. It's the kingdom of God, and it's his pleasure to give it to you. So here's your application. Sell your possessions and give it to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look, you've got a life that you're clinging to. What would happen if instead of clinging to this life, you gave that away? And then in giving that way, you store up treasures in heaven where moth rust and uh, inflation can't can't touch. What kind of life would you have? You'd have a life that's giving and generous and Christ-like, and that would be a full life, but clinging to it like an old miser is not a full life. So in the end, stop clinging to your life. Trust, just trust God. He's, he's going to take care of you. Be generous. Be gracious. Be Christ-like. Give it away. And then you'll find that you're truly living. And I think in the spirit of Christmas, we all know that to be true, isn't it? When we give it away, when we stop clinging, we have more fun. Sometimes we take our lives a little too seriously. 
And when you stop taking life so seriously and you stop clinging to it so much, isn't it more fun? It is. It is. Someone say amen, it is. I like this quote. The goods on which we, our hearts now repose can be removed from us or we from them in a night. The thief, the moth, and the changes and the chances of this mortar life are always and everywhere one giant step ahead of us. Isn't that true? All of our clinging, it's like, I can't never win for losing. Like everyone else is against me. Well, stop clinging to your life, cling to your death, and you'll be one step ahead of them. <laughs> so what is life all about? Paul says, for me to die would be gain and to live is Christ. I think it's about that. We do not need to set ourselves up with knowledge or materials or protection or sp even spiritual protection. We don't have to prove anything. The simple thing we have to do is just have faith. This is what Christian faith is all about. It takes a lot of faith to listen to everything I just say and then say, okay, I think I can do that. Because in your mind you're thinking, how do I do that? Are you telling me to get rid of my 401k? Are you telling me this? Are you saying I should just give, you know, really? Well, how would you ever do that unless you had faith that God was going to provide for you if you did something? It takes radical faith to do radical things, to, 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 to let go. Faith can be described as, you know, uh, Alice in the Wonderland, you know, jumping into the rabbit hole. You have no idea where it's going. You're just going to jump in. That's faith. Or to put a, a modern spin on it, take the blue pill, Right? You don't know where this is going to take you, but it, and it's not going to be good, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but if you take the blue pill, it'll be the truth. You know what I'm talking about, the matrix? Take the blue pill. It's all about faith. Capen says, therefore, it's by faith alone that we can lay hold of our true life out of death. Right? We don't know what's on the other side of death. We don't know how to die to ourselves. So all we can do is say, Jesus said die to self. Jesus said stop clinging to life, cling to your death. It is through my resurrection with Christ that, that it all matters anyway. So I'm just going to have to bank it all on the eternal. Bank it all on faith. The only way you can do it. Faith in him who is the resurrection and the life. We all have to do is trust Jesus and die. That's all you have to do. <laughs> the Christian life is pretty simple. Trust Jesus and die. If you really take what Christians believe and you boil it down to the finest points, that's what it is. We honestly believe that the next life is more important than this one. Isn't that true? And that takes a huge amount of faith. All we have to do is trust Jesus and die. Everything else has already been done for us. The ravens and the lilies bear mute testimony to that trust. Our joy awaits until we give voice to what they already express. Our true joy, our true life happens when we let go. And that's the end. It's a warning, needless to say, that we hardly heed. Of all the desires for wealth, practically the last one that we will give up is our desire for mental and spiritual richness. Yet Jesus is only urging his disciples and us to do what he himself did in his own trial and passion, to lay down his life and to let God raise it up in his own good time. I, I wanted to put this quote out there because that's exactly what Jesus did. Give up your life. But, 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 just trust me. Jesus not hesitated a little bit, didn't he? Went to the garden. Father, is there, any, is there any other way? I mean, moments from now, I'm going to die. I trust you because you're my father. I know that you're going to raise me up, but that's a big deal. It required faith on Jesus' part. And he's not asking you and me to do anything that he hasn't already victoriously done. 
is going to die. I'm going to let them bury me in the tomb. And then I'm going to wait three days. And I'm going to trust that he will raise me up. And the Bible says, and because he did that, he was lifted up to the place above all places. He sits at the right hand of God Almighty. And isn't he living a better life now? Yes. Jesus did it, and he asked us to do the same thing. Die to yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me into death, because that's truly life. Amen? Father in heaven, uh, what an appropriate parable in this Christmas season as we often sing songs and talk about the gift of giving, and it's better to give than to receive. So we can maybe start there this holiday about how to let go and give more, stop clinging. But I pray, Lord, that this would radically change our lives, that we would actually begin to seriously think about what we're living for, what treasure we're storing up in heaven. Are we storing up treasure here that's only going to die? Or are we really living our lives for those things that are eternally important? And I fear that most of us are not, if not all of us. Please help us to trust you more and to stop clinging to our little lives and give them to you wholly and completely. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.